0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, Episode 64. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, we explore the possibility of remote working in contract archaeology. Believe me, it's possible. So, dump the office and let's get to it. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. This is Archaeotech, the show where we test gear, review it, talk about new and innovative technology, and try to break in new tech so you don't have to. So welcome to the show. Welcome, Paul. Um, I kind of did a solo show last week, but you're back for this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, good to be back again.
1: Yeah, it's odd. I was uh, I was on vacation on the same coast Paul lives on, and yet we're still so far away. And it was so hard for my side for planning and to do anything. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about the Apple keynote real quick, do a short show, and then bust that thing out there and get it out. So that was nice and, nice and easy for me to do from the beach in the in the sketchy wi-fi i had
0: (laughs) yeah well the last Um, few weeks have been so crazy at work there was really no good way to get get together anyhow even from my end
1: i know sometimes i'm amazed that the archaeology podcast network gets anything done because every single show has remote hosts like nobody's in the same place and everything happens. all these moving pieces come together and it's crazy
0: well that's pretty fantastic and that applies to uh, today's topic
1: Absolutely. Um, so what we're going to talk about today, and I think I've probably mentioned this before because I'm such an advocate of it, but we're going to talk about remote working. Um, I mean, a lot of people, I, I'm in a co-working space right now. Uh, and if you don't know what a co-working space is, they're kind of starting to pop up all over the place, especially here in the West Coast and these remote Silicon Valley outlets, which Reno's kind of weirdly becoming. Remote working is essentially, you know, you're still working for somebody, but you're working um, for you're working somewhere else. That's really all that means. And uh, basically, we I think I feel like we've been doing this for a long time, and we'll get into that in a minute. Um, that we just don't realize it, but we'll get into that in a minute. But right now, I want to talk about how Paul and I both do some of our remote working kind of stuff, um, and and how we've done it in the past. Um, I'll start off because I know I've I know I've talked about a lot of this before, but I mean, I do a lot of stuff in the cloud. I'll just put that out there. And I, I always look for things that make my life, I guess, easier. Uh, even if even if I'm not working with somebody else, I try to find, I try to work with documents that are collaborative. You know, there's Google Docs, um, Microsoft even Microsoft documents if you're um, you know like Word and, and, and Excel and stuff like that if you're on the newest system, the arc the the arc 365 that's a podcast. If you're on the office 365 system then your documents are also collaborative. I've worked with it a little bit. I don't think it works quite as well as Google System um, especially if you're doing live updates like simultaneously working in a document. Um, But it does work. And then there's Dropbox has their whole Dropbox paper thing. Um, But we'll get into a lot of those other things. But most of my remote habits involve using Dropbox extensively. Um, And I I had to upgrade to Dropbox for business so I could share subfolders of shared folders. And that's a whole weird Dropbox thing. But you have to upgrade to be able to do that. And that's that's mostly what I use. And then obviously for um, computer itself... I always buy the best laptop that I can possibly afford at the time because if I'm gonna be out in the field or I'm gonna be remote or something like that, I need as much power as I possibly can because I don't know what I'm gonna to have to do. So if, if it turns out I've gotta create something or do something and I need the processing power to get that done, I don't wanna have a substandard to computer that's not gonna be able to get that done. Um so if you if you know your your use cases um, and, and your your maximum output cases, then you buy the machine that's gonna that's gonna hit that and probably exceed that just a little bit. And then if you buy a little bit more machine on top of that, then it'll be a little bit future-proof, at least for a few years. So, um, And then, of course, cell phone, data plans, hotspots, um, all kinds of stuff. I mean, anything I can do to stay connected and to do it efficiently while remote and being real conscious about being remote, not just getting caught out somewhere and having to cobble together stuff, but being conscious of the fact that, well, I might want to do this, I might want to do this, and I might want to do this. So I'm going to have to have all these things to make that happen. And I always try to find the, uh, the simplest way to do that. Um, sometimes it doesn't look that way because I'm in transition or trying to figure stuff out, but <laughs> I do try to find the simplest way to do that. So. Um, but I'm not going to get too much into it because we're going to go over a bunch of these things and we'll go over um, you know how, how we use these different technologies as we go along. But, but Paul, what, are, what have been some of your more successful or even unsuccessful um, remote techniques and things you've used?
0: Yeah, so I don't uh, have the opportunity to uh, telecommute much because you know the kind of work that I do. It's it's basically like being a plumber. You've got to be on site. I've got to be actually at school to help people fix things as they're broken. Uh, that said, though, we've set up uh, over the years a lot of different kind of collaborative environments where we have to uh, where there's a class, for example, that's being offered between people at our school and students or teachers all around the world. Uh, and so you have to establish some sort of a uh, a communal space for them a virtual classroom Uh, we also have you know the the communication that goes behind class trips and such and then uh, because I do a lot of network admin, I have to frequently stay up late at night when something goes kablooey and remote in and do my work on our servers as if I were physically at the space, but when I'm actually sitting up in the living room. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's not exactly telecommuting, but, but it definitely applies to uh, to some of the techniques that we use probably apply to people who want to do something more along the line of telecommuting mm-hmm. or set up a, a, a presence uh, in a physical space or with a, a group of. People. People that they're collaborating with, when they aren't physically there with those other people,
1: right? And I think that's the the first thing you have the the first question you have to ask yourself when you're thinking about telecommuting, or you're thinking about if you're an office manager, you're running the sh- running the office or running the company, and you're thinking about setting this up for your employees is is can you do it, and can everybody do it? Um, because one of the 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 thing I think about is what are the physical things I need to interact with at the office that would cause me to be at the office, right? So... Maybe that's um, I'm constantly using a large format printer or something like that, and I just don't have one of those at home, mm. or I'm constantly engaging with uh, some piece of tech, or it's my job, like your job, Paul, to, to physically go in and fix things and do stuff and stuff you just can't you just simply can't do remotely. Um, you know, people need computers that need restarting, and they can't do that themselves. So you have to go in <laughs> and do that themselves. <laughs> so... So that's the first question you have to ask:
0: unjam the printer, that's right. fix the computer, restart, absolutely this, chase down a wiring flaw. That's whatever. right. You don't want
1: anybody to go office space on the printer. So, um, no. <laughs> so, so that's the first question you have to ask yourself. And, and let's look at a, a typical archaeology company. I think the personally, aside from like lab work and people you know that that are physically handling artifacts and things like that, you don't really want to take that home. I mean, plenty of small companies do their lab work at home. But they've got a setup for that. Uh, so, you don't, that, that's one job and one part of the, the the process that probably just really needs to stay at work. Um, and I would say for a lot of people, just because of finances, GIS is probably one that most people would probably do in the office just because the GIS department typically has the best computers. They're accessing the servers, which you can't do remotely, but they have the, the computers running the computing power. Now there are ways around that, of course. You can have all your processing done on another machine if you're working remotely, but that takes some setup. We'll discuss a few of those exactly, exactly. So, but the other, the other big physical thing that we interact with from an archaeology standpoint at work is other people, and that's one of the most, the most like confounding things I think that people look at and they say, "Well, I just can't do this remotely. I can't do it." Like you know, Paul and I are talking over Skype, but some people just can't handle that. They just can't handle that from a conceptual standpoint. They need to be able to physically sit in front of somebody or sometimes there's a trust issue when you're like, are they working or are they not working? Are they just playing on Facebook? I guarantee you the people sitting in your office right now have checked Facebook 65 times in the last hour, unless you blocked it on your (laughs) Wi-Fi. So... um, yeah. yeah, so I mean, so that's happening anyway, and and that that comes into a different philosophy of work. But let's get into some of these other things, and we'll, well if we have time at the end, we'll kind of throw some some different work philosophies at it uh, at at the end. So uh, let's talk about some of the things that you would do in an office normally, um, and then how you would do those remotely. So one of the things is meetings. People love having meetings. There's a lot of companies will have a a Monday morning meeting just to figure out what we're doing for the week often they'll have a Friday meeting to figure out, okay, what did we do for the week? Where do we stand? And then, you know, what do we got to do starting next week or something like that? And sometimes there's impromptu like project meetings and stuff like that where you have to get going. So what are what are some of the ways that um, we can get these meetings not only scheduled, but actually, actually do them? Paul, you got some... Some good ideas down here in the notes.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, um, that the, the, the distinction between a, a standing meeting or a regular scheduled meeting uh, and that impromptu meeting is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that gets to the kind of work that you're doing and whether or not, you know, how often you're going to be able to be away from the office uh, if we're talking about an office environment. Um, we have uh, at work, we have a few meetings any given week, and we have occasional uh, occasional meetings we set up around a project. But a lot of the, the sit down and, and close the door and have a meeting meetings we have are in response to some sort of problem. It might be, again, because we're dealing with students, it might be a social problem revolving around technology. Or it might be you know some technical issue, but I have to sit down with the director of IT and uh, and say the uh, the net admin for a little while and figure out how we're going to uh, solve a given problem. But that's not something that's scheduled in advance. That's not something that's planned for. That has to happen right now. So that that kind of a situation is probably a lot harder to accommodate uh, when people aren't physically in the same space. Uh, but for the other ones, uh, and we do this not just through work, but, uh, you know, for all sorts of different kinds of collaboration. Um, so, for example, I've said before, I'm on the board of the local society, the local chapter of the American Arche- uh, Archaeological Institute of America, the AIA. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we have to schedule our meetings, our board meetings. And one of the tools that we use for that, and there are a bunch of different tools that do the similar sort of thing, we use Doodle, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll put that in the show notes later, um, is where... We have to pick some evening that we can get a quorum of board members in the same place to have our meeting. So we all go on there and we pick and indicate what days we can or cannot, what times we can or cannot meet. Uh, and at the end, somebody, the uh, the president of the board, uh, will, uh, will sit down and decide, okay, we, we have enough people on this given day, let's do it. Uh, so that's one tool. You use Calendly a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we schedule these. Uh, we schedule these podcast recording sessions through it. Uh, another similar online tool. Uh, at school, uh, a lot of the teachers use a product called "You Can Book Me." So they'll upload their calendars because they have a fairly regular calendar. They meet Mondays at these times and these times, and they meet Tuesdays at these times and these times. But students. Uh, need to make essentially office hour appointments with the, with their teachers and so they can then go to you can book me see the times that the teachers are around and schedule a uh, an office hour visit mm-hmm. uh, so there, there are a lot of these these tools that are available nowadays uh that that answer similar sorts of problems in slightly different ways uh that make the scheduling component of remote meetings uh much easier i don't know if you have any uh, any other examples of them
1: no, I mean for scheduling, those are those are really it. Um, those are the big ones. Um, Doodle is a is a really big one. I'd never heard of. You can book me, um, and then Calendly I had heard of before. Oh, there's also um, Acuity um, scheduling. I think it's called Acuity, mm. which mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little sad that I didn't go with Acuity because it turns out Acuity is integrated with Squarespace, which is all my websites are on Squarespace. So I I'm too embedded in Calendly to like switch it over now, but um, I might do that in the future. But Calendly. Uh, You know, I will just say one of the frustrating things for me about Calendly is I use multiple calendars for different things. Like I have lots of different calendars and I have each Google email has its own calendar basically associated with it. And I have a few of those for different things that I do. But Calendly only lets you assign one calendar to it. So now I basically have my whole life on the APN calendar because most of my scheduling happens through the APN. So if mm. I if my wife and I are doing something, like we were on vacation last week and I, I didn't know what the Wi-Fi was going to be like. So since people can schedule 30 days out, I create an appointment that's basically called a schedule block and I just, I just put it in for all those days. But that has to be on the APN calendar so nobody can schedule over it. Um, and I have some recurring schedule blocks like my Civil Air Patrol stuff that I do. I have that set as a recurring schedule block and it's just a schedule block appointment over the top of the normal appointments that are there, so I can actually see what I'm doing, not just a schedule block. <laughs> and, um, cause those are in mm-hmm. other calendars, those different things. So I have to create the schedule block in the APN calendar so it doesn't, you know, it's a, it's kind of a mess actually. Um, but the way Calendly works is pretty great. I like it from a user standpoint. I've never, I've only once actually booked an appointment through somebody else's Calendly and that process seemed okay. But, um, but yeah, um, so there's multiple ways you can schedule meetings and, and make that happen and, uh, and 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 keep that rolling. So once you actually schedule your meeting, though, you have to figure out from a remote standpoint how you're going to actually talk to that person. And of course, one of the big ones is Skype. Um, a lot of people are using Skype. There's um, Zoom. There's, uh, uh, there's GoToMeeting. GoToMeeting is kind of expensive, but has a lot of nice functional tools in it. Um, FaceTime, if you're on Mac and, and all in the OS system, Um but uh, I think the biggest deal here, like you mentioned, Paul, is these impromptu meetings. Scheduled meetings are okay. We can plan to be somewhere at a certain time. We're adults, right? But the impromptu meetings is really hard. And when I was working, um, when I was working with Codify on app development, which we've talked about extensively on this podcast... Uh, you know, Michael Ashley, who is the founder of Codify, is in Portland, Oregon. I mean, sorry, not Portland. That's where Chris Sims is, the other guy who's there now. Uh, Michael's in uh, San Francisco Bay mm-hmm. Area, and I'm here in Reno. So for us to be able to in- instantly communicate with each other because there were some times of the day when we were both working on something where he needed an instant response from me and I needed an instant response from him. So we had, and I don't know who came up with this because i never heard it really before since we started doing it, uh, before we started doing it, but it's co- the idea of co-presence. So if you've got a bunch of people working remotely, you just agree, regardless of what time zone they're in, regardless of what they're doing, regardless of what's happening. You say, "Hey, on on these days, from this time to this time, we're both going to be in front of our computer or accessible within thirty second notice. Like if I send you a message, I want a response. Like I'm like you were sitting across from mm-hmm. each other in the desk, right? That's co-presence. And you just decide. Don't make it an eight hour day. That's just that's unrealistic. If you if people are telecommuting, they're going to want to kind of make their own schedule, and I think you should let people be flexible enough to do that. But have some co-presence times, uh, some co present times set up throughout the day, so you can say, you know, from two p.m. to 3, to four p.m. or something like that, uh, universal time. So no matter where we're at, you know, so you know, time zones don't get screwed up. We are going to be. In front of the computer, and at a moment's notice, we can talk. And then hopefully, your impromptu meetings happen during those times. But if they don't, maybe you have semi-co-present times, and those are basically working hours. Like, you know you're not going to be out on a hike and out of cell service during that time. You'll be, you know, within a reasonable time period, able to get into a meeting really fast. Um, And that's basically your working hours. So just some things to think about for, for remote workers.
0: Out of uh, out on a hike, out of cell service. That uh, that probably applies <laughs> to uh, CRM archaeology quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, so how does this apply? How does this whole uh, topic apply then for uh, for people who are actually out in the field needing to uh, to communicate with people back in the office?
1: Well, those are, I think the. I mean, that's obviously a big challenge, and we deal with that all the time here in Nevada. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, you you can almost guarantee, like you you know, basically when you can't access somebody, uh, because a lot of times we're not allowed to do overtime. So you know that by 3.30 p.m. or 4 p.m. or whatever the end date, end time is, the crew will be back in the hotel. And I've said before, like to my crew chiefs and things like that, listen, don't don't immediately bail. Don't immediately shut, shut everything off and go take a shower or do something. You've got a few things to do as a crew chief after the job. I want to be accessible to you for an hour after the fieldwork ends or something like that. So if you have to call me or I have to call you, I know that we can each get a hold of each other then because it's really hard mm-hmm. working with remote field crews because if you can't talk to them during the day, which is the, the courteous, professional courteous time to talk to somebody is during the work hours. You have to talk to them after work hours, but you don't really want to suck up all that time for them either. And they need to have a work-life balance where they are separating work. They don't want to be sitting down to a meal or having a drink or hanging out with friends at 8 p.m. and get a call from the boss. I mean, they just don't want that. So Mm -hmm. you have to have that separation. Now, of course, there's emergencies and there's scheduling things. And it's like, I have no choice but to call you right now. They have to understand that that's going to happen. But otherwise, you set up boundaries. And I think it's the same thing with, with office workers as well. Is you just set up boundaries and you say, um, you know, listen, I'm not, I'm never going to call you. If I call you past this time, then it's a dire emergency, and you better answer the phone. I'm not going to call you just to chat or ask how that report's coming. (laughs) You know, that's going to be during our (laughs) semi-present or or co-present working times that I'm going to talk to you about that because that's work time. So. Um, but that's, that's one of the hardest things yeah. to do when people start talking about remote working is separating home from work. And e- even, you know, me, I'm at this co-working space. I don't need to be here. I could do everything I'm doing right now from home, but I just don't want to be at home. I'm trying to separate that mentally. The, the being at home means I'm not working. It never really works out that way. I'm always doing something, but being at home. No, it doesn't work. For I know. Anybody. Right. Yeah. But I try to, I try to separate that because I, I, well, it doesn't work really when I'm at home. It really works when I'm at work, you know, when I'm at my office. When I'm at my office, there's no home-like distractions. Like I'm here and I'm working and I'm focused. When I'm home, I might be doing a little work or I might be doing a little home stuff, which was the problem before I started coming here is I was constantly getting distracted at home because because I had that mix of things there. So um, if you're going to do... If you're going to support remote working, you might want to consider paying for people to work in co-working spaces. And this is also you don't have to pay for an office yourself. You know, like if you're paying $6,000 a month or whatever for a office space, a big office space, and you can drop that cost down to a couple thousand dollars a month just paying for, you know, internet and things like that for your employees so they can high, high speed stuff. That's the whole reason we're really talking about this, getting rid of that whole space, the space you don't need and then working at home. So, But that's pretty much the end of our first segment, which went really fast. And uh, we have a lot more we wanna cover. So let's take a break and we will come back and try to get through some of this stuff. And we'll be back in just a second.
0: This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store, and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members.
1: All right, we're back, and we are talking about remote working and how you can possibly do that as an archaeologist. Um, so... You know, we've already talked about meetings and, and covering those and and uh, making sure you're you're co-present and 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 you're you have established times that you're going to be working that you're going to be um, you know thirty second accessible versus five minute accessible versus not accessible not accessible at all you know so you can separate that work life balance. But while you are maybe co-present and working on stuff, collaborative documents are kind of all the rage these days. Um, and I've been in documents, especially on Google Docs, is the best one I've found for it. Um, I've been in Google Docs where there's three or four of us in there and we're putting together a proposal and all of us are working on different sections. And we're we're also in voice contact because we've got a Skype chat or a Google Hangout or something running. Um, and then we're talking about this document and you can it's really cool to see something coming together and you can see the person's name on the screen next to their cursor and everybody's typing and everybody's everything's coming up differently. That's actually really neat to see um, and to watch it happen.
0: We use it a lot. Our teachers actually use it for planning quite frequently, uh, even when they're physically in the same oh, yeah. spot, the same classroom, having an after school meeting, deciding some bit of curriculum <laughs> and four of them will all be typing into the same document and it shows up different colors as <laughs> it's coming through. But um, mm-hmm. but it's it's an incredibly useful tool and and collaboration uh, is really the, the, the killer app with uh, Google Docs you can use anything you want to right. write a uh, to write an essay for example but if you want to collaborate on that essay with somebody else you need one of these cloud-based services and uh, and Google uh, Google Docs is really the uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla right now
1: it really is and i i love the way I, there's some formatting things I don't like about Google Docs, like some things with their uh, with Sheets. They're they're basically a spreadsheet program, and then I use slides occasionally um, for their, their basically their PowerPoint kind of thing, their presentation stuff, and then of course Google Docs, which is just their their word doc word document word processing document, and. Um, there are some formatting things I don't like. Like, I don't think I'd ever use a Google Doc as a final document. I always bring that over to Pages for polishing or something like that. But as far as creating it goes, if it's got to be collaborative or I want it to be available everywhere on any device for anyone that I can share with easily, I'll probably start it in a Google Doc. I mean, I'm watching Paul do stuff in the Google Doc we have for the show notes right now, <laughs> and we use it extensively on the APN, so... Um, because it's easy. I don't care about the formatting here. Like it, this is not a final product. It's just our show notes. So it's it's perfectly easy to to have this on. And and Paul's on a computer more than likely, and I'm sitting here on my iPad with uh, with Google Docs up, split screen with Skype, so we can have our chat in the background as well. So very collaborative. Um, and and that's the thing. You know, right now, Paul and I are both recording this podcast separately on either end. I'm recording both sides on my end. He's recording his side on his end. We've got a Google Doc running and split screen on an iPad with Skype on the other side so we can chat. I mean, this is collaborative um, networking right here, and we're putting together something uh, unique using this collaborative methodology. Yeah, we're really so,
0: dogfooding it right now. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, so for people in the Mac ecosystem, which is really not that many archaeology companies, most of them have uh, Windows systems, but for people in the Mac ecosystem, for a few generations now, uh, the Mac... I guess word processing documents like Pages and Numbers, uh, and Keynote have been are collaborative now. Uh, now I've done collaborative documents in Pages, and I've actually done collaborative slide presentation where we're putting together a slide deck for a for a pitch basically, and we were both working on different sections of it, and that was pretty cool to watch come together as well. But unlike Google Docs where you can actually watch somebody type in real time, it seemed like pages had more of a lag to it when we were creating and documenting pages. We were doing it when it first came out just to try it. And it didn't seem as fluid. Like somebody make a change and then I go to doing something and then all of a sudden the paragraph I'm working in has been deleted or it's been wiped out or moved or changed to somewhere. And then it, then it gets confused and the changes weren't happening as much in real time as I wanted them to. Um, I'm not sure what the Reason for the lag is, I don't think it was our sides. I think it was just Apple built that in or didn't take it out or for some reason didn't think about it. And it's just not as responsive as Google Docs is. But it is collaborative nonetheless. Maybe not instantaneously collaborative if you want to work in it together, but it's collaborative if you're both working on something and you say, hey, go check this out. I added some stuff to the document, then do this. What I hate, what I absolutely hate, I don't know how many times I've been working in a, in a CRM firm and you're working on a site record or a, or or a draft report, and somebody sends off the draft report to somebody else, and then you just end up with this string of initials at the end of the file name because every time they make a change, they feel like they have to change the file name for version oh. control. But most programs already have version control in them. like It's already in there. You can already go back and see other versions. Or, hey, turn on track changes or something like that. And then you can see where the last changes were, but don't change the file name. You end up with 700 different versions of the same document. Paul, you sound like you know exactly. Oh what yeah, I know exactly.
0: Um, actually, I'm working on a uh, <laughs> on a side project right now, editing a volume uh, that should be coming out sometime next year, or the year after. Uh, and we're using track changes, and such we're using this entirely offline, not collaborative documents. But uh, through a whole naming convention for the files, uh, invariably they come back named wrong, so I have to rename them back into the convention. Right. Make sure track changes is turned on on them. These are word documents; that are going back and forth. But if I could move every one of the collaborators in this volume onto Google Docs instead, I'd be so much happier because, <laughs> again, uh, you know, the version control is right there. And in an office environment, that's that's huge. I mean, that to, to be able to mm-hmm. look at something and somebody has taken a spreadsheet and accidentally screwed it up, they they pasted something into the wrong cell. I can just quick look at the history and uh, and. Tick, 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 back through it and find when it happened and what is actually supposed to be in that cell and revert that um and that's so much easier than it ever was when we were emailing documents back and forth and hey is the excel file that oh, we've yeah. got our inventory on is this the latest version or is this one from last year uh, yeah yeah oh awful inventory actually yeah. that for something with uh, like numbers or uh or the uh google sheets and ms office 365 Mm -hmm. with uh with excel uh you know a lot of a lot of jobs not just uh what we do but certainly i'm sure a lot of anybody that's doing field work that has equipment to manage whatnot has inventories and those kinds of documents are perfect even though you don't need the, the the back and forth instant update you know but an inventory list that is shareable to everybody in the 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 group um, uh, that is always up to date is, is fantastic. You know, and you don't have to build a whole interface around it in order to get people access to the database that's managing these things. You don't necessarily have to have a, uh, an equipment manager that's, that's keeping track of it, uh, though that might help. Uh, but you know, these are, these tools for just managing the day-to-day ins and outs of the offices, uh, is, is really, are really handy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. it, it- You've got source control down here too. What do you mean by that?
0: Okay, source control. Uh, I didn't even know where to put this, but uh, under <laughs> <laughs> this, this heading of collaborative documents, I thought made as good a sense as any. Uh, so, and especially since we've mentioned uh, version histories of our of our documents, source control allows programmers to keep track of changes in the in the programs that they're writing and. For at least 10 years, maybe more now, there's been a trend towards these distributed version control systems. The the leader of them all is one called Git, and that was developed by the, the Linux Foundation for changes to the Linux kernel. Uh, and that's a huge project with probably thousands of programmers spread around the world, all contributing their own little bits. Uh, But it allows them to make changes and contribute those changes back into each other's, uh, into the project as a whole. But there isn't necessarily a master copy of anything. So we use Git and we use um, not GitHub, which is uh, one of the two websites for hosting Git that's very popular. We use one called Bitbucket. Uh, and the programmer, the web dev at, at our office and I use it constantly, absolutely all the time mm-hmm. in order to uh, to keep track of the programs that we're writing. Uh, so he'll make some changes and contribute them upstream and I can then from my machine check them out and, uh, and verify them. If I like them, I merge them into what I'm working on, uh, you know. W- we have adjoining offices, so we could discuss things by just getting up and walking next door. But uh, <laughs> but it would work equally well if we were, uh, and we've done it like this. If there's a problem that we have to fix over a weekend, you know, he's in the city, I'm out, uh, I'm upstate. We can both be doing our programming independently. We chat or text or email with each other a little bit, phone call, and uh, and make everything work. Uh, and a big part of that is having a system that we didn't develop uh that uh Mm -hmm. that allows us to manage our code and our changes independently so you know it it brings in some of the ideas of the collaborative documents like in google docs uh, and definitely brings in a lot of the version control that we see in google docs uh, office 365 track changes uh, dropbox will also do that um yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that that version control is probably a whole. Uh, you know, source control is probably a whole another topic that I could talk about for you know, quite length, uh, explaining exactly how we use it. But uh, but if you're doing anything that's strictly text, uh, I think that that's uh, that that's something that one ought to look at, especially if you're doing any kind of programming.
1: Yeah. If you in the last um, in the last few weeks, hell, in the last five years, added your initials to the end of a file, you're doing it wrong. So uh, give us a call, <laughs> t- contact us, <laughs> and we'll help you through it. Um, but uh, so anyway, um, it, it, I mean, the biggest reason I say that, too, is it's not, it's still not foolproof. Like you still don't know if that's the most recent version or whatever, unless you know how to look at the file and see when the last change was made. So, you know, um, but again, that is getting, like you said, off topic a little bit. Um But one of the things you mentioned in there uh, a couple times was uh, basically related to cloud computing. So one of the essential things you're going to need if you're going to dump the office entirely or even if you're just trying to remotely deal with your field crews better is some sort of cloud computing. Now, you can create your own cloud computing networks, uh, which means you still have to have a place that you store your servers and all your information is actually stored. But for most people... The easiest way to do it is going to gonna be to get something like Dropbox for Business or something like that, and those are those are pretty secure. I mean, they have their issues occasionally. For the most part, for most, um, uh, for most, I guess usual circumstances where you're basically just using this to store and retrieve files, um, then there's not going to be that much of an issue. Uh, again, I use Dropbox for business. It's $75 a month for their minimum plan. And that's five user licenses. So if you've got a bigger office and you need more people, then you're going to end up paying more money. And I don't know what it goes up to from there. You'll have to look it up. But um, when you're looking at that versus, say, uh, the server space that you would have in your office that you no longer own, then it's actually not that much money when you really look at it. Um, You know, it's just one more thing you're paying for, but it's not paying rent and you're not paying these exorbitant costs for all that other stuff. And you have the peace of mind that your data is actually multiple times backed up on Dropbox servers. So if they have something go down or if they have a problem, uh, it's really hard for them actually to lose data. It's really hard. It's more likely you screwed up and lost the data rather than them losing the data. So um, if you learn how to use it and you learn you understand what's going on, then it's actually really easy to use. So, I mean, I'm actually recording this podcast right now into Adobe Audition on a full in a folder on a file that's actually on Dropbox and Dropbox is continuously syncing while this is happening. Now, if I had an internet issue or slow computing, I'd probably pause Dropbox while I was doing this. And then when I was done, upload it all in mass, but it's actually happening in real time. This is saving offsite uh, where I'm at right now. So anyway, there's lots of different cloud computing things. Just know that it's a piece to your puzzle that you're going to have to get uh, something that you're going to have to do.
0: One big piece of the puzzle, if you're somebody that has an office, you're running a CRM firm and you're used to having your own, uh, your own servers on site is that you can now host a lot of your servers in the cloud. Uh, we don't actually do that at school. What we have is, uh, is virtualized servers. So it's kind of similar, um, so whereas when, you know, 15 years ago, we used to have a room full of different servers, each one tasked to, to a certain application or doing a certain, uh, a, a, doing a certain task force, uh, we combined all those uh, a, as virtual servers. And so we now have our main systems are running on 3 hyperconverged systems. So they're, they're mm. a modular two-unit, three unit uh, box that has three servers built into it and then virtual servers we've got about 20 of them running on that the next step beyond that is to move some of those virtual servers away from being physically hosted in our location to hosting them up in the cloud like on amazon servers and so that right. if you're somebody looking at simplifying your uh, what you're doing with your office trying to not have to pay for a server room uh that that's a Uh, especially attractive option Mm -hmm. you know and if you're using it for and uh even if you're not doing virtualized servers up in the cloud if you're using something like dropbox instead of you know hosting a file share on your own uh they're the chances that they're doing it right are much better than the chances of you doing it right i mean in terms of security (laughs) in terms of backup and redundancy in terms of a single point of failure you know if you're if you're doing backups, but your your building burns down, and you've been storing your backups in the same building as your server. You've lost everything. That's not going to happen if you're saving those files up in, in a service like Dropbox. So, you know, there there are some mm-hmm. distinct advantages to uh, to looking at cloud computing in its various forms, you know, for for an office environment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so one of the other ways that you need to be able to communicate. Uh, with each other, whether it's um, if, if you don't want to have it to be, um, how do I say, face-to-face, I guess, um, is, is email, of course, but email is the devil. Uh, and email is the devil in the same way that uh, adding your initials to the end of a file is the devil. <laughs> I feel like it's the same thing, especially when you've got an, an in-depth conversation going over email. Email is great if I need a single piece of information from somebody. I'm going to send it to them and say, hey, do you have this? Or here's a document for you to look at, or something like that. You know, if it's something I need to send to them that way, if they're not connected to me in any other way. But I've had so many conversations over email, and it just gets so frustrating, especially when it's more than more than two people involved. Somebody doesn't hit reply all, and then they're out of the loop. Now you've created it's like divergent evolution. It's like a, now a branch has been made mm-hmm. in this email chain, and they're off in their own land, and they're not even there, and they're constantly coming back. I just had this with an agency archaeologist. I have a prime contractor, and the three of us were trying to collaborate and and talk about this thing about this project. And, and the agency archaeologist just kept hitting reply to me and not replying all to my to my guy. So I was adding him when I would reply back to her. And then he'd have to look through and see what she said. And it was just like a nightmare. Um, but one of the things I've been using for over a year now that I've talked about on this before, I probably had it as an app of the day, is Slack. Uh, and Slack is great for team communication. It integrates with any device, any system. Um, it's basically just organized communication. And the nice, the thing I like about it is, you know, for like, for let's say the APN, uh, the APN Slack team, um, we have, we have probably 20 plus channels uh, on the APN Slack team. But most of the hosts, like yourself, Paul, you can probably only see a handful of those uh, because that's all you need to see. Now, none of them are private. So you could actually see some of the others if you wanted to. Actually, I think some of them are private on the APN one just because I wanted the hosts to have their own privacy. But, uh on the, on the ones that aren't private, you can join them if you want, or you can leave them if you want. But on the ones that are private, those conversations can stay between the people who are invited to that channel, and then that's it. Um, like, I think that we used to have, like, a business channel and some other stuff on there that the co-founder Tristan and I were in that nobody else was in because this was APM Business. We had so much stuff that we've since split that off into its own APN team, like APN management team channel, (laughs) not channel, but team. And then we have probably 30 channels on there now for all the different things we want to talk about. And all a channel is, is a room basically. So, um, And then anybody who's a, a premium subscriber to the APN at any of the three levels, one of the first things you get is access to our members only Slack team. And in there it's a bunch of unlocked channels. None of them are private and you get to see, well, some of them are private depending on your level. Like we got some professional ones that are, that are private for the pro level people. But, uh, that's so you can go into a channel for the show and then talk to the show hosts about that show. And you can keep all your conversations organized by topic. And that's how I love Slack for that. And we got to kind of slam through this a little bit because we're running up on time, but, um, uh, Trello is another one that we use pretty extensively at the APN and I've used with other organizations. It's basically, uh, it's basically a way to organize your workflow uh, if you want to look at it that way. You, uh, project management, it's really good for project management. You create basically these lists, which are the top-down vertical lists, and those go horizontal. So you've got lists going from left to right. And then under each one of these major topic headings, you've got cards. Think of them like Post-it notes. On those cards, though, the cards are really powerful. You can have integrations to those from, like, Google. You can attach docs to it. You can drop files onto it. I haven't seen a file size limit. I know there is one, but I haven't experienced it yet. You can create checklists, all these things. And then as these cards get finished or go to different stages, you just drag them over to the next stage of the project And as a, from a project management workflow. That's how we do our APN stuff. It's pretty simple for the APN. We usually just have ideas in development and publish. We don't really need any more steps than that. But... Um, but that's how we do that, uh, Paul. Are there anything else under like communication and things like that that you wanted to mention, or maybe your impressions of Slack and and Trello?
0: Uh, well, I've you know I've been very much aware of tra- of Slack for quite a while. Um, it's it's very popular amongst a lot of the uh, a lot of the ed tech people. We never really picked it up in our office. One of my coworkers uses it for keeping track of things. Uh, when he's got questions technical questions there's a Mac admins group but that those are not people that are that he knows personally those are people out there in the wilds of the internet uh, a couple of whom he trusts because they tend to have good answers uh, it didn't ever meet our needs we all are working out at the same office for the most part uh, Trello definitely could be useful for us uh, we haven't explored it but uh, it's been working great I'm Quite enjoying it using uh, for for the Architect Podcast. It's working really well for you know jotting down ideas and then fleshing them out and then turning them into actual uh, into actual podcast episodes. Uh, email, nice. uh, like you said, it's a devil. <laughs> uh, and then the lowest common denominator of, of any kind of team communication, uh, and we use this constantly at work, is uh, is uh, text. You know, mm-hmm. we're constantly texting each other. Hey, I need help with this. Hey, could you check on that while you're over there? Um, does anybody know the password for whatever service? Uh, right. So we have a bunch of different group texts and that's totally ad hoc. Uh, and uh, but that's good. I think having that ad hoc and uh, not quite as structured as some of the other ones is useful in its own context. We could certainly do that same stuff with a Slack channel, uh, but we have. Yeah, we've just fallen into being used to to texting each other.
1: Well, that's what I was gonna say. I was real surprised when I introduced Slack to my Civil Air Patrol squadron. I've got a lot of admittedly, I have a lot of older people that are there that are sometimes adverse to newer technologies, but the older people that I have there are almost all former pilots or current pilots. So they're always they're are a different sort of older person. <laughs> they're you know, they have smartphones, they understand technology, they're not as adverse to doing these things. So it took a couple of months for me to get them used to it, but once we did, because we had the same thing, we were texting back and forth. Some people wouldn't, you know, include everybody on the text, and we had all these group texts, and then, you know, on iOS you can't like name the conversation. Well, you can name the conversation, but it was too cumbersome to go do that. So once I got everybody moved to Slack though. Now I have people actually using that as text. Like I get very few texts anymore. Sometimes people don't realize they can use Slack in certain circumstances, so they'll still send me a text. And then I'm like, hey, you could have sent this, you know, can you, can you reply to this in Slack in this channel so we can keep a record of this conversation? Um, mm-hmm. And then in Slack, you can, just like you can do a group text, you can make ad hoc without creating a whole new channel. You can create an ad hoc direct message chain between several people, and as many as you want. The whole entire Slack team, if you want, for some reason, you can just say, "Hey, we're going to have this conversation going right now." Like I have, I have a few of those conversations on my Civil Air Patrol one and on the APN one, where there is two or three of us in this in this direct message chat, which basically is just our own private channel that nobody can see. Um, it's not archivable; it's not anything, uh, which I guess is maybe why people use it, but probably just laziness too. But, uh anyway, yeah, if you're constantly if you're currently in like chat hell, text message hell <laughs> and and you're also and you're also dealing with putting people on a group text where some of them are Android and some of them are iOS, and some messages are getting missed and dropped and and put different places and the you know the emojis aren't working out and all that stuff, then you're a prime candidate for Slack. and Slack is free. By the way, uh, I forgot to mention that there's some cool customizations you can do to Slack and some other stuff that make it cost more money. Slack goes from free to ridiculously expensive. There's no in between. But the free version, I'm on like 13 free Slack teams right now, and I just joined another one today, and they're all free. And I don't know, I don't know how Slack makes any money, quite frankly. But uh, there, uh, I think it's be those big enterprise businesses. Because when you do start paying for it, you're paying a lot for it, but you're getting a lot more at the same time. So. Anyway, let's take another break and we're going to come back to this for segment three. And I've got an idea for possibly some bonus content. So um, let's take a break now so we can uh, wrap this up here in a second. Hey, podcast fans, check out the ARC 365 podcast at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365. That's A-R-C-H 365 for your daily dose of archaeology. Each episode is less than 15 minutes long, and we have some great guests recording about awesome archaeology. We also try to throw in some definitions and basic archaeological information. So check out the 365 Days of Archaeology podcast only in 2017 at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash ARC 365 today. Find us also on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Music by typing ARC365 into the search. Now back to the show. Okay, we are back talking about remote working in archaeology. How can you do it? Should you do it? All those things. Um, So we're going to kind of skip around just a little bit here. But one of the things I wanted to mention briefly, only because it's fun, albeit creepy. If you still have an office, uh, like you're not going full remote on this thing, but you still have an office, but you're going to send some of your employees out to be remote, and they're they're out all the time. But then you, you still want to kind of interact with them in meetings and things like that. I still think this is kind of a weird thing. But telepresence robots—they came online right about the time the iPad did. As first, as soon as we had a really solid device that that could be you know Wi-Fi and touchscreen and and really solid quality, these robots appeared. And there will be a link in the show notes to a wire cutter article. And they went through some extensive testing, and their, their pick ended up being the Suitable Technologies Beam Enhanced Robot. And basically, all these things are is a solid base that can move 360 degrees forward, back, whatever, can rotate. They're usually on some sort of tall arm, so and then the iPad's at the top. So theoretically, whoever's remoting into this thing... You see their face on the iPad at your face level, and they can usually raise and lower. On the better ones, they can, they, can, they can come down to a sitting height, raise up to a standing height. They could walk down a hallway with you because they've got full control over the robot from their side. They see forward, backward, speed controls, left, right, stuff like that. When the robot starts to die, um, its battery, it will automatically go to its charging station, or you can just turn it off, and it will just go to its charging station. It knows the layout. It knows where to go to get back to the charging station. So I imagine a future where we've got a conference table and there's just like 12 of these robots with iPad faces on them <laughs> all around <laughs> it like nobody's there. <laughs> I don't know what usefulness that is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we actually had experience with that uh, 10 or more years ago with, with uh, an early iteration of one of these. There was oh, a student God. who was uh, who was sick <laughs> and was going to be in the hospital for, for a few weeks. And uh, so kind of, I guess, as a test case, this company that was developing them, uh, arranged to have a robot in his classrooms. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, it, it could raise its hand if it wanted to ask questions. It didn't work particularly well, and so the the plan was dropped. But that again, that was a long time ago, and that was before bandwidth was quite as good as it is now. It was before Wi-Fi was as good as as it is now and uh, and mm-hmm. video streaming wasn't nearly as common as it is now. All those things I think have caught up with where the the company wanted to be and I don't remember the name of the company otherwise I'd put it in the show notes or maybe not because I think I just <laughs> slanked on them a little bit. Nice. <laughs> but yeah uh,
1: I mean it always reminds me of those uh, I think there was uh, I mean there's always a movie somewhere where God I've seen it a few times where you know somebody's up there and, uh, teaching a college class. And there's a, there's a tape recorder sitting at one of the students' desks. Then in the next shot, there's 10 tape recorders. Then the next shot, it's all tape recorders or video cameras, depending on what year you're watching the movie. And then at one point, I think it was real genius or something like that, where even the instructor, like it was all tape recorders in the students. And then the instructor had a video playing. They weren't even there. Like nobody was there. And, uh, it was just that was perfect. Um, so I don't know what kind of usefulness these things have, but they are kind of fun and they're they're an interesting an interesting deal. Um, all right, so let's see. Let's go to well, you've got Paul. This is more your expertise here. So telecommuting into an office computer. So you're you're, you're there still is an office, but you're working remotely, maybe temporarily or permanently. Who knows? But you need to access information stored. At the office how do you go about doing that what are some of the ways you can do that
0: right I'll try to keep this brief but basically um, the uh, there are a number of different uh, uh, different programs that one can use to get back to a specific computer in the office so remote desktop apps um, on the Mac it's baked into it with back to my Mac Uh, Microsoft has built on top of terminal services they've got RDP and uh and then you can get third party services mm-hmm. like log me in which will allow you to log into your machine from uh, a web browser somewhere and basically what they do is that you know, from off site from remote computer you can log in as if you're looking directly at your own machine and interacting with uh, whatever files your computer has access to its hard drive the network and so on it's like sitting in front of the computer but you're not in front of that computer you're in front of a different computer um I just wanted to bring that up because, you know, I could certainly envision when somebody's out in the field, especially if they've traveled somewhere and they've unfortunately forgotten something important that they need back at home at the home office on their uh, on their machine. So long as that thing is powered up, they can uh, they can still remote into it. Now, in order to do so effectively, another or safely, maybe another component of this might be having a VPN, a virtual private network. So most operating systems now have a number of different VPN protocols baked into their network stack, and any decent firewall will have uh, at least one kind of VPN option to it. So what that can do is allow you, as the remote worker, to act as if you're on the uh, the network uh, of your office place, and then you can have access to whatever network resources, databases, file servers, and so on, as if you're physically in your office space, but you're not. And so we use those combined. We use VPNs to access our office network, and then we use RDP to access our Windows servers. It um, works very well for us. Uh, and so most of the kind of, you know, late night call, something's broken, I have to fix something, uh, work that I do, I'll end up You know, I'll open up a VPN session and remote into whichever server is misbehaving and kick it around a bit until I I can get it working right. So that's just a useful uh, tool set that if you're still, you know, partially in an office and partially outside, uh, one can can look at.
1: And if you need to uh, unplug and plug in your machine again um, at the remote site, you can just log into your telepresence robot with hands, now with arms, and go over (laughs) there and just do all the work you need to do. Um, wasn't there a Bruce Willis movie about that not too long ago Uh, where he was like they were like all in these what was that called they were all in like these bodies basically like you see these perfect looking humans walking around and you realize that they're just being controlled by people at home that never leave the house Um, anyway so yeah that's that's the ultimate that's where our reality is headed I'm pretty sure of it but uh, all right, so let's talk quickly about some of the advantages and disadvantages of, of doing all this I think we've kind of Alluded to it by talking about the different technologies, but from an overall standpoint, I think personally some of the big advantages are people can uh, people can spend more time with family, creating their own schedules. Basically, uh, you know, if they need to, uh, if they if, if it works out for them, or they they have young children and they really can't go to work until like nine ten o'clock in the morning uh, because they've got to get them off to school and stuff like that, but then they're willing to work late at night once the kids go to bed and that's okay for your schedule. Like if all they're doing is report writing and they're not interacting with clients, maybe that's okay, you know? And and they can create that schedule however they feel. Some people, like, you know, between like my wife and I, she works great at night. Like when she's after work and she's working on something, you know, she can work 10, 11, 12 o'clock and she just go into the night. I'm totally wiped out by like 10 o'clock. Like I can't do anything. If I got to edit a podcast, it's just not going to happen or it'll be a really bad job. But if I get up at four o'clock in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, I am the most productive for those first few hours that early in the morning, no matter how much sleep I had the night before. I don't know what it is with me. I'm just like, right when I wake up, bam, I can do anything. But a few hours before going to sleep, I'm completely useless. And everybody has their own patterns for that. So, um, and I think, I think you open yourself up to a bigger working pool too. Like if you say, hey, we need people for this office to do these things and but you're limiting yourself especially in a field like archaeology where there's very few people in your local area that are actually qualified to do what you need them to do you open your you you close yourself off to a massive pool of workers if you say you need to be at this office at this date and this time if you can set up a remote working situation with a bunch of people then you can you open yourself up to the entire world versus just you know small square area so paul what do you think are some advantages to this
0: uh, well, obviously, you alluded to this then too, the collaboration mm-hmm. across distance, time zones. Um, I think that's actually the, uh, the killer app for, um, for telecommuting of any kind is that, uh, that you can work with people if you've set up your your infrastructure for it properly you can work with people all around the world in a productive manner it depends entirely on what kind of work's being done again it's not something that i can do because i have to physically be in a location to work with physical objects Uh, but if one can work with data if one can work with producing output reports for example uh, then yeah uh, (laughs) i don't see why one wouldn't yeah
1: yeah totally um, so some of the disadvantages uh, are lack of face-to-face interaction. That um, that was actually really talked about by, God, was it GE or something like that? There was a thing back in like the 60s uh, or earlier than that. They set up this campus where, um, God, who was that? Maybe it was IBM. I don't know if they're that forward thinking. Anyway, there was a, yeah, it was some Solid. computing. I read it in that book, um, The Innovators by Walter Isaacson. It was a really good book. but. Anyway, they set up this whole Mm. campus, what was intentionally set up to keep offices from similar departments, like separate from each other. So they'd have to walk down these hall and these chance encounters with people completely outside of your field would happen and people would get to talking and then amazing collaborations would take place because of these chance encounters. Like, you know, a person from this department who would never speak to the person from this department are actually having a conversation. They're like, hey, we can actually help each other and create something amazing. Now- Less likely that's going to happen in archaeology because we have pretty, pretty, you know, specific tasks that we need to do get the report done, get it out the door, and, and get moving. But, um, but I think those chance encounters and those those interactions are actually important, which is why I'm an advocate of for if a company was going to be a remote company, but everybody was most of the people were actually local, like they lived in the same place, then if you don't have any offices at all, maybe schedule some conference room time somewhere. There's conference rooms you can rent all over town in any town.
0: yeah, they're big here in New York.
1: Yeah, exactly. And just have a meeting like once a week or something like that and say, hey, every week or, or have a lunch meeting, better yet, you know, something a little more social, but say just so you can have some FaceTime, everybody can keep together and, you know, once a week they're going to be there. So, you know, you know, your, your coworker, Joe, isn't actually telecommuting in from Italy and he's just totally checked out, um, you know, something like that. But, you know, then, then you can have that face-to-face interaction. Um and then I guess the other thing, like you have down here, Paul, is losing boundaries. That work-life balance—you really have to, right. you really have to watch that. So,
0: yeah. So the uh, the two—the lack of, of face-to-face interaction for me is uh, is really a matter of, of camaraderie and teamwork, uh, a sense of of working with a, a group of people on a specific project. And I feel like that can get lost when you don't have when you don't see people face to face. I know that you know my best friends are people that I worked with in the field. You know, and years ago, and we're still buddies, uh, and people that I've, you know, would have a lot in common with that would like otherwise, but have never worked on a particular project with, uh, I'll feel like a stranger to them. As soon as we start working face to face on something, then it all clicks, um, so if you're worried about group, you know, about teamwork and about uh, a sense of cohesiveness within the group uh, of your office, then that's a significant uh, disadvantage for somebody like me. Losing boundaries, again, uh, depends on the work, but uh, you know we all are feeling that pressure of getting the texts and the emails <laughs> well after work hours and then feeling that we have to respond to it. Yeah this is a long weekend we're recording on Columbus day and, uh, and I've deliberately not looked at my work email. <laughs> well, no, that's not true. I looked at my work email, but I haven't responded to my work email right, right. all weekend. And, uh, just, just because I don't want to lose that boundary. Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, I hear you. Um, and it's, um, that's, that's probably one of the biggest things is the work life balance and uh, and and losing those boundaries. So, again, goes back to uh, co-presence and having those times that you set aside, even if you're even if you're remote, um, having those times and keeping those times sacred and saying, listen, from this time to this time is going to be work time where I'm going to be accessible and have that have that time frame on it say I'm going to be accessible within 30 seconds or 60 seconds which isn't unrealistic when you think about an office if I can just yell to the next desk over or walk down to your office you're literally accessible in 30 seconds to me unless you're on the phone or something so you should be accessible that way during that that tight co-presence time and then the semi co-presence time um, you know, is, is maybe a few minutes. Like that's the rest of the workday. Like uh, within five minutes, I can get back to you with an answer uh, or 10 minutes or something like that. And then if that's not working out, you know, somebody needs to be on top of um, monitoring that situation and making sure that that's happening. And then I guess the biggest thing here is really adjusting from a manager standpoint, your, your idea of what work means. It's not about the hours. It's really not. And if a lot of these people are on salary, you're already acknowledging the fact that it's about the output. So as long as people are getting their work done and that work is good quality and the work is on time and there's no issues with that, try not to concern yourself with how they're getting that work done. It really doesn't matter. That's all you have to look at. It's the output. Who cares how it got done? Who cares when it got done? It got done at the time you said it was gonna get done and it's a high quality. That's the only two metrics you really should measure that by. If somebody's consistently late or consistently has problems, well, then you need to talk about it. If the problem is because they can't focus at home, well, then there you go. But probably that's not the problem. Um, it's more likely other stuff. So, all right. I think uh, I think that's it. You got any final thoughts to add to this, uh,
0: Paul? No, just... Uh just to say that the losing boundaries one is uh, it's kind of cuts both ways. You mentioned (laughs) that uh, the telepresence allows one to, uh, to work in, uh, in whatever manner is best suited for them based on their, their schedule, their, the, when they like to work, uh, what time of the day and so on. But uh, at the same time, you know, the same tools can be used to totally erode those boundaries and to uh, eliminate the autonomy that you'd get from that.
1: Yeah, totally. So, all right. Um, we've gone a little long on this, uh, and we've kind of ran right over our App of the Day segment. So we're going to throw that into bonus content, uh, which we haven't really yeah. done. I know. Which we haven't really done enough of on this show. And I need to really start baking in some more bonus content because as long as – just keep in mind for membership, for premium subscribers, uh, or for people that don't want to be premium scri- subscribers, which statistically is probably 99% of our listeners, it, we're never going to shortchange a show and make you pay for the real good stuff. We're going to give you an amazing show and, and pack it with information. And then we're just going to provide a little extra to those who want to subscribe and, um, and, and, and help support the APN and help keep the lights on over here. So um, if you're interested in APN membership, go to arcpodnet.com forward slash members. You can see the membership plans there. For the top two plans, our standard and professional membership, you'll see bonus content. So anybody who has that, go check the bonus content page, and you'll see our app of the day segment, which we'll include right there. And for the app of the day segment, um, well, I'm not going to tell you. We're, you know, just Go over to the bonus content. Check it out. <laughs> so all right well thanks paul and uh thanks Chris. thanks everybody else yep and uh we'll see you guys next time bye that's it for another episode of the archaeo podcast links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast which can be found at wwwarchaeologypodcastnetworkcom forward slash archaeo if you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag Archeotech or tag at ArchPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster.
0: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
1: Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just seven ninety nine US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.